We are the climbers of a new age, the age when climbing exploded in popularity. My generation knows no difference. We don't know the era when climbing was an underground culture, before there were climbing gyms in every city and bolts on every crag. We do know a simple rule. You have to get up before they do. We needed to be the first people on the climb. We're also a party of four. We needed the space and time to move fluidly together up the 2,000 foot route. After 30 minutes of hiking up into a drainage, we arrived at the base of epinephrine, relieved to be the first ones racking up for the climb. Welcome to the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast from the climbing zine. I am Luke Mihal, and this is episode 26, 24 Hours of Vegas. One interesting thing in this story that I plan to try to write more and interview more people about this climber named John Rosholt, who they called the gambler. And he was, in fact, a full-time climber who supported his climbing, playing poker. I was able to be in touch with his sister for a while about his life. He was also missing for a number of years, which I get into a little bit. I don't dwell a lot on him in the story but I was able to speak with his sister and we wanted to do an article on the zine and it just never really came together. But there are some, I don't know if Super Topo exists anymore, the forum, but there were some very interesting stories about him and his disappearance was something that she really got involved in and she was looking for him and um, they later found his remains in Red Rocks. Chad, my producer, wants to do a, a whole podcast or a series of podcasts if you knew John, you would like to speak with us, give me a shout at luke at climbingzine.com. As I always say, the number one way to support this podcast is to buy some things from the Climbing Zine. We've got books, we've got zines, we've got subscriptions, we've got merch, and we've got stickers. And we even have a children's book, Squeak Goes Climbing in Yosemite National Park. Let's get into episode 26, 24 Hours of Vegas. As a traveling modern vagabond in my post-collegiate years, I would always end up in Las Vegas. I was lured there by the climbing in Red Rocks, and inevitably, my Conrads and I would end up partying in Sin City. Thus, 24 Hours of Vegas was born. Inspired by a liberal arts education, coupled with the belief that I would live out of a tent and always be happy, I was a dreamer. I dreamed of the open road. I dreamed of climbing forever. I dreamed I'd find myself out there somewhere in America. Sometimes, as a solo road dog, I would arrive in Las Vegas alone. And alone is the best word to describe that feeling. I had a penchant for gambling, and I would park my car and then walk to find the cheapest casino. I'd have a couple drinks, walk alone down the Vegas Strip, and after miles of walking, find the cheap, sad casino at the end of the line, where dreams go to die. Now... Why I never started right then and there at the sad, cheap casino, I'm not quite sure. Las Vegas is full of illusions. Maybe I thought I'd gamble a little where the people with money did and win big. Of all the times in my five years wandering from climbing area to climbing area, with the hopes of finding myself, or simply finding something, these were the moments I felt the saddest. I don't think I was necessarily sad about my own life, but sad about the human condition there especially the old folks, those who smoked cigarettes and played slot machines. There were too many to count, 
and to peer into their empty souls when I was in these days of hopelessness and openness that life could be beautiful was simply too much to take. But I looked. I looked at Vegas and took it all in, similarly to when I was out in nature, studying a climbing area and drinking in the vastness of the wild. I studied Vegas too much, like looking into the sun too long. I'd been warned. I'd read Hunter S. Thompson's Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas and knew enough that Vegas was where the American dream went to die. I knew the town was started by mobsters. I knew that environmentally, this place was on borrowed time. A place that consumed so much water, energy, and resources was out of place in this desert. But I was there, and I would drink it all in. I was a college student in the George W. Bush 9-11 days, a fact that shaped me more than I probably realize, even nearly 15 years after the event. In college, I was upset about the war, upset about the conditions of the environment, and upset that the world was an unjust place. Some people go to college and figure out what they want to do for a career. After graduating from a liberal arts college in the middle of the mountains in Colorado, I only knew what I didn't want to do, and that was be part of the sheepish, American mainstream. So this is where I was. Of course, I was full of contradictions. And though I was a college graduate, I was a freshman in life. I made my living by washing dishes and living in my truck. When the work dried up in the seasonal mountain town, I drove said truck across the United States and Mexico and slept in the back. I was going to be a writer, but I'd yet to truly write much. I was searching. Red Rocks, was one of my favorite climbing areas. It was a featured, forgiving array of pink, red, and maroon sandstone, juxtaposed with the sprawling Vegas landscape. When you woke just before the sun prior to a multi-pitch climb, you won at life. You won because there were so many others losing, still awake from the night before, partying, searching to feel, perhaps sinning so much they would hardly recover from such transgressions. I didn't know much at the time, but I knew it felt good to do good. And climbing all day, that was good. I liked to party too. When I was young, I'd ruined more than one climbing trip to Vegas by celebrating before I had anything to celebrate. A hangover leading up to its name, the partying hung over my head as I sweated across the hot desert sun, my simple sinning dripping over, spilling onto a cactus. I stumbled through the desert, begging my climbing partner to retreat from our planned mission. And this is why we came up with 24 Hours of Vegas. We would climb a big 2,000-foot route, epinephrine, by getting up early and then staying awake through the night until we'd been awake for 24 hours straight. Plenty of outdoor events were centered around the theme of exercising for 24 hours. We just thought we'd throw a little partying in there for good measure. We woke in the dark and quietly exited the Industrial Bureau of Land Management campground, an ugly area set on the edge of this beautiful red rock world. Soon enough, the sky was pink, a sunrise that felt a little man-made, the light pollution and smog mixing with the beauty of Mother Nature's sunrise. And then we headed into the canyon. I could bullshit and embellish, but I actually don't remember the vivid details of the climbing that day. My mind's eye can recall the chimney, and once that was over, there was a nice ledge with maybe eight to 900 feet more of climbing, moderate featured climbing that seemed to go on forever. Reflection makes me think of another climber, a man they called the Gambler, John Rosholt. He went to college in Gunnison, where we all did, but dropped out to pursue climbing. I heard that story before. What made the gambler was unique was that he was a professional poker player and full-time climber. And when we did this climb around 2007, he'd been missing for a couple years. 
Years later in 2010, the mystery would all come to an end when a team of climbers found body parts on the wall, the very same wall in the Black Velvet Canyon that we were climbing on that day. The general conclusion was that he was hiking around and scoping a new finish for his route Texas Hold'em, located near Epinephrine, and fell to his death. His sister Jane searched for him for years. Given that he was a professional gambler, many theories existed on his whereabouts. His sister was relieved when DNA tests revealed that the remains were his. I had the chance to speak to Jane a couple times on the phone while we brainstormed ideas for a story that never took shape. She wasn't a climber at all, but she loved her brother, and she cherished the legendary stories about him and all his adventures and new routes. Even though the story never came to fruition, to listen to her talk about her brother put so many things into perspective. As climbers, danger and risk become routine. It's good to be reminded that our lives are always on the line, and we risk it all for this thing that we love. Epinephrine gave me a dose of what I love the most about climbing, being way high off the deck with a thousand feet or more of air below your body. Such exposure puts you deeply into the moment, and those moments are gone once you read the belay and stop. Gone forever. Sometimes makes you wish you didn't have to stop and belay. But on the end of the rope is your buddy, and it's nice to share those moments. All four of us made it to the top just as the sun was going to bed. We didn't dream of rest and sleep at this point. We dreamed of more. 24 hours of Vegas was happening. The hike down was a little complicated, a series of having to make the right decision about where to go. Fortunately, Tim and Tim had climbed Frogland, a route just adjacent to Epinephrine, and had scoped out the descent. We stumbled for a while, maybe an hour and a half, until we were back in the canyon. The light of the Luxor blazed into the sky, seemingly showing us where the next step of the night was. We emerged out of the wash, back at the truck. And then we drove into Vegas. We ate some fast food just as the place was closing down for the night. We dreamed of partying, gambling, and karaoke. Tim was a karaoke king, and he could rock the house with some ACDC or vanilla ice. Somehow, it didn't occur to us that it was Sunday, and by the time we got to downtown, it was midnight. We wanted the strip and put money in slot machines and did the things people do in Vegas. We drank beer openly, as you can there, and made jokes and screamed, 24 hours of Vegas! We kept wandering and wandering, and I found a karaoke place where I once performed the MC Hammer Dance in front of 100 people. I told Tim about this, and he was super psyched to check the place out. But once we found the joint, it was closing for the night. We looked in like we'd missed something. The time for fun on the weekend had passed. But we had to make our 24-hour mark, so we wandered around some more. We got on a shuttle train and rode it back and forth several times, all of us falling asleep at one time or another. Finally, four in the morning rolled around, and we called it a day. The most sober of us drove back to the Red Rocks campground. It could have been just another Vegas trip, where people take their sinning to a certain level that they are comfortable with, or go beyond it and regret it. In those days, my heart was hungry, and my soul was yearning. I believed in doing good, and probably more importantly, doing what feels good, and will still make you feel good the next day. Climbing was exactly that. And the part that made me feel the best was in those 24 hours was the climbing. Sometimes I try to imagine dealing with my hunger and my angst without climbing, and I simply couldn't do it. Places like Vegas would have swallowed me up and spit me out a weak man. I haven't been to Vegas in some time now. Inevitably, it seems to be a central place in the West for a climber. It's easy to end up there. 
These days, with all the water issues, I often wonder if we'll see the demise of Sin City. I always did think Red Rocks would be more appealing without Vegas right next to it. Who knows, though? If the city did collapse, surely some seedy characters would still persist in the remains. We humans sure are resilient, for better or worse. Like the famous statement by Rene Dumas in Mount Analog about the climber always having to leave the summit, yet he still knows the glory about the heights above him because he has been there. The same applies for Vegas. Alone, I felt the sadness of this island of sinning. I still know that desperation, that sadness of someone nearing the end of their life alone, looking into a slot machine for some sort of salvation, or maybe looking to that cigarette lit because they gave up long ago. You can't dwell too long in the sadness of things you had nothing to do with creating though. The world's full of too much of it. So I cling to the joy, those moments with friends like that day on epinephrine, feeling like we won at life because we experienced such freedom in a free experience. Because in one 24-hour time period, I stood thousands of feet above Vegas and realized that high up on a perch is the best place to be where wonder and excitement dominate. And later in that day, I also experienced the doldrums of America, that one telling you America's gimmickry will make you happy. Knowing too, the answer to happiness in America is not so simple, and it lies somewhere in between the ether, the mountains, and civilization. That was episode 26 of the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast from The Climbing Zine. You can get a 25% off coupon code uh, in the show notes. Uh, Anything in our store, you can uh, apply that link there and that will automatically give you 25% off anything. There also is a playlist on Spotify that accompanies um, this first season of the podcast. Uh, The music that I was listening to in this era, probably about you know the early 90s to uh, 2016 when American Climber was published. This piece was originally published in Graduating from College Me, A Dirtbag Climber Grows Up, and that was my fourth book, my third collection of short stories, and honestly, probably my most obscure book. And you can also pick that up in the link in our show notes. Music from this episode was from Ketza, Chad Rich is our digital editor and producer. And for the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast, I am Luke Mihal coming at you from beautiful Durango, Colorado. Mm-hmm.